birth in Christ. And this begins with us. I mean, this is the mystery of the gospel, that we are one in Christ. But what is unity? What does it mean to be one? What does that mean to you? See, I think as we talk about this word, I don't know if we fully understand what it means biblically because I think when we think oneness or we think unity, we first of all just think the absence of conflict or that we all get along. But that's not what Paul has in mind, although it includes that. It's so much richer than that. What Paul has in mind is this deep sense of oneness, of togetherness, of we-ness. For instance, we are not just a bunch of individual right, individuals right now just sitting in our chairs. We are a we. It's to experience this, this joy of being known, of being loved, of belonging. In fact, as I mentioned, I just got back from Israel and I was with a group of 60 people for two weeks. And we were in intense community. Half of this group was over 60 years old. Okay, and something hit me. There is something wrong with Crossroads. I mean this. And this is not to offend any of the younger people. But we need old people in this church. I mean, that hit me so hard for for two weeks. They thought I was helping them. They thought I was, I mean, I was carrying their pack. I was sometimes, literally, we we, we had hikes where I had these two ladies who were in their mid-70s who I literally almost carried down the whole mountain, one step at a time. And I kid you not, as I was doing this, I was so glad I had sunglasses on because I was weeping the whole way down the hill. The joy of being with these two 75-year-old women who thought they were going to die. Literally. (laughs) But to hear from their lips... Their love for Jesus, their love for Christ. And spiritually, I felt this tall. Community. Can't put a price tag on this. This intense kind of relationship is what we all crave right now. To have people look at us and love us and accept us. To the core of who we are. Money, fame, sport, sex, power, pleasure. At best, they only scratch the itch. The longing of our heart is relationship, it's community. And some of the images that, that Paul uses in Ephesians to help conceptualize this unity and oneness are he says, we're a family. He says, we're one body. He says, we're one spiritual temple. And you're going to come to see then that these pictures, they're all rooted in the Trinity because we belong to one family to whom God is our Father. We belong to one body of which Jesus Christ is the head. And we belong to one temple 
in which the Spirit of God indwells. And see, now we're stepping into the basis of our oneness. Rather than going to the next text in Ephesians, I want to talk or look at this in light of Jesus and what Jesus has to say about this. So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. I'm going to read the first five verses and then 20 through 26. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given to him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. And skip down to verse 20. In between that, Jesus prays for his disciples. But now he switches gears and he says, My prayer is not only for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So this is Jesus' prayer for us this morning. That all of them, that would be us, may be one, Father. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me. And have loved them even as I, as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory that you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known unto them and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just think about this. As Jesus is about to die, he's thinking about us. He's thinking about you. He's he's thinking about me. He's praying for us. And there's so many things that that Jesus could be praying. I mean, there's so many things that we need, not only individually, but also corporately. But really, he prays for one thing. Look at verse 21. That all of them may be one Father. And then look at verse 22. That they may be one as we are one. Verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may be brought to complete Unity. That's what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for our oneness, for our unity. The kind of oneness that he has with the Father and that the Father has with them. So the question I ask is this, why is this so important to Jesus? I mean, why is the make or break it thing not 
that we have right doctrine or we live the right way. It's because of this. Unity and oneness are at the heart of who God is. See, God in essence, is a plurality, and within that plurality, jet lag. (laughs) Within that plurality, there's this radical unity, and therefore we have the Trinity. Now, in most passages in the Bible, the Trinity is in the background, but here it is front and center, especially if you look at the previous four chapters, starting with chapter 13. Now, I'll be the first to admit that as Christians, when you start talking about the Trinity, I think this is one of the most confusing things that we believe about God. But I also believe there is no more beautiful or more glorious thing than we believe about God, that he's a Trinity. And I'll start with this. It is a mystery. It's a profound mystery. It's one that our minds can't completely figure out. But listen to me. If our minds could completely figure out God, then God would cease to be God. The, the thing that makes God God is that we can't figure him out. And that alone should make us dance. In fact, uh, when I was in the old city in Jerusalem, I was walking around one day by myself. And I was in the Muslim quarter a Muslim came up to me, and he had all these tracks in his hand. I knew immediately what he was going to do, and I loved it. Because you know what? For the first time, I got to be on the other side of this thing. <laughs> I was just watching him squirm, and he's, he's trying so hard to defend his Muslim idea of God with me. And he kept saying to me, he's like, we believe in one God. And I'm like, we do too. No, you don't. You believe in three gods. And I kept, he kept coming back to this, how we believe in three gods and, and, and he believes in one God. Um, listen, Christianity does not say that we have three gods, nor do we say that we have one God who is one person. Hear this. We believe in a God who is one God but three persons. And don't think of God who one moment kind of puts his father hat on, then in the next moment puts his son hat on, and then in another moment puts his Holy Spirit hat on. We believe in one God who are three persons. Don't think of God like a pie, that that one piece of that pie is, is the father, that another piece of that pie is the son, or, or another piece of that pie is the Holy Spirit, because that would be polytheism. But what we believe is this, and this is the best way that I can explain the Trinity to you. If the Father could actually look in a mirror, the image staring back at him would be Jesus. See, Hebrews 1 uh, verse 3 says that the Son is the perfect image in in the radiance of the Father. And and so perfect is this image and radiance of the Father that it forms the second person of the Trinity. And see, then between them is flowing this intimate knowledge and love. And so perfect is that flow that now you have the third person. 
And so what you have in the Trinity is Father and Son are in the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit are in the Father. And the Spirit and the Son are also in the Father. I mean, look at verse 21. It says that, Lord, pray that, or Jesus says that they may all be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Now, the reason why I'm laying out this doctrine this morning is not just so that we can have a proper understanding of this complicated thing, but I want us to think for a second about what this means. Because it's awesome. It means that God within himself is a community. That there's this plurality of persons who so perfectly love and glorify the other that we say three persons, yet one God. That within God is relationship. And that this relationship is so marked by the glory and adoration of the other, motivated by the purest of loves. In fact, Look at verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. This is what Father and Son and Holy Spirit do. They glorify each other. Look at verse 4. I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. And then you go down to verse 24. And you see what motivates this Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, and the Spirit, of course, is also included in this. But what motivates this giving of glory to the other, he says, the glory that you have given me because you love me. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been pouring oceans of glory and praise into the other all motivated by love before the world began. Glory. What does it mean? Well, think about when two people love each other. What do they do? When two people really love each other, they're always seeking to please the other person. They'll do whatever it takes to make that other person happy. So they selflessly serve the other, they adore the other, they glory in one another. And this is God. God is a community of persons. They're not seeking their own glory, but they're selflessly bringing glory to the other. They're pouring oceans of love and praise, exalting, adoring the other. Now, the Desert Fathers used a word to describe this, and the word that they use is a Greek word, perichoresis. Do you want to say it? Perichoresis. Let's do it. One, two, three. Perichoresis. There, now you can Google it. Perichoresis simply means to dance or to flow. It's this idea of the divine dance or the flow of the Father and the Son and the Spirit around each other. And I think C.S. Lewis explains this as well as anyone when he says in mere Christianity, perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all the other religions is that in Christianity, God is not a static thing. He's not even one person. 
but rather God is a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me to be irreverent, a kind of a dance, a circle of glory, of fullness, of the delight of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And see, this whole inner life of God has been going on since the world began. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been loving each other, glorifying each other throughout all eternity. And this is what it results in. Joy. Do you know joy today? Honestly, ask yourself this question. Are you happy? Is your life right now marked by joy? See, there's no greater happiness than to say that what will make me happy is what will make you happy. And there's, there's no greater joy than to seek someone else's joy. This is why even Jesus, in our text, as he is approaching the cross, he's still talking about his joy. We didn't read the verse, but look at verse 13. This is when he's praying for the disciples. He says, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Or Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross and its shame. And what is that joy? That joy is us. He's in the dance. He's not thinking about himself. And see, what all of this means is that at the heart of the universe right now, there is relationship. That ultimate reality, God, you could say is a community of persons not seeking their own glory, but the glory of the other. They're not right now demanding or taking love, but they're freely giving it, resulting in this explosive, infinite joy. And see, only Christianity can say this about God. As Augustine said, if you don't have a Trinitarian view of God, then you don't have a perfect one because the strict monotheistic God of the Jew or the Muslim is left with a God who didn't have a personal relationship until he created someone else. Think about that. That throughout all eternity, before God made the world, he didn't have a relationship until he created the world. But the reason this morning why the Bible can say that God is love is because God throughout eternity has always had someone to love. It's just so intrinsic to who God is. In fact, I think we can conclude that this is the reason why God made the world. I mean, God didn't make the world because he was lonely or because he was on some power trip. God didn't make the world to get glory because he already had it. He didn't make the world to get love or to get joy because he already had infinite amounts of love and joy. God made the world. Specifically, God made us so he could share it. And see, Jesus then did not come to this world to get praise or to get glory or to get love because Jesus already had these things in infinite amounts in the community or the family of the Trinity. But rather, Jesus came to this world to get us back so that they could once again share this with us. 
That's why in verse 3, Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. In fact, this word here, know, is the, is the Greek word gnosko. It's not just having this factual knowledge of the fact that Jesus came to this world, but it's much richer than this. It's this personal knowing. It's this experience of being in the dance, of the flow of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit flowing into us and through us and out of us. Is that you? Do you know it? Do you know the flow? Are you right now like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about, Rod. That is the experience of my life. Are you bursting with joy right now? Are you like, I'm so happy I can't contain myself? Why not? This is eternal life. That they may know me, know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Look at verse 21. That all of them, Father, may be one, just as you and I, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And verse 23, in them, and I in them, and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. I mean, Jesus is praying these things, that, that, that we not just know about him, but that we're in him. As, as, as the Father is so in the Son, that we are now in God. See, this is the basis of our oneness and unity. And this is why the Bible uses words like adoption, because when we're in him, it's like we're adopted back into God, back into his family as, as sons and daughters. It uses metaphors like a, a vine being, or the branches being in the vine, because it's not like we just know about him and have these facts about him, but we're actually in him in the same way that a branch is in a vine. And then the flow of God, the flow of his self-giving love is, is, is flowing in us and it's flowing through us and it's producing this infinite joy. Do you know that joy? See, joy is the serious business of heaven. God made us for joy. Christ came to the world for our joy. And the joy that God offers has absolutely nothing to do with one's circumstances. It's completely rooted in one's relationship with him. It's participating in the shared life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, this joy, it lives and it thrives in the midst of trials and difficulty, and even deep grief. That's why Jesus in John 16, verse 22, can uh, pray this or say this. He says, no one, and I'll add no thing, 
will take away your joy. And that's why we can face life. We can face difficulty. We, like Jesus, can even face our, our crosses with joy. If we're in him. And see, unless we, we center ourselves on him, we cannot share in that joy. Did you hear that? See, you're never going to experience this joy unless you live your life to bring glory to God and bring glory to other people. Because the reason why the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are in this perpetual state of joy is because they're also in this perpetual state of bringing glory to the other. And see, this is why God made us. This is why we're made in his image. It's so that we can be like God, so that we can live to bring glory to God and others. Is that why you got out of bed this morning? Or let me put it another way. The surest way to destroy joy, live for yourself. Seek your own glory. See, because when we do this, we are going against the grain of the center of the universe. We're going against the very heart of God and who God is. Now, what scares me about this is that, and I think we all know this, we live in a time and a place where self is sovereign. I mean, we spend our days fixated on ourselves. We, we try to find our dreams. We try to fulfill our dreams. Life is all about me. It's all about seeking my own glory. It's about me seeking my own happiness. And then it becomes very natural then to love ourselves, to promote ourselves, to exalt ourselves, to live to satisfy ourselves. But see, here is the irony of our day. Where's the joy? Where is it? See, because when I become the most significant person in my life, life quickly loses all significance. And see, today we live with the means to pursue whatever we want. We can almost get whatever we want. But in the end, we're empty and we're incredibly lonely. Because seeking our own glory is the way we lose glory. And seeking our own happiness is the way we lose happiness. And to live for ourselves, to live for ourselves is the path to hell. It is. And I mean that both literally and figuratively. Because when one descends too deeply into themselves, they're beginning to descend into hell. And the path to hell is a very slippery slope. And selfishness is the complete antithesis to God. It's the anti-heart of God. And see, the reason why Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are infinitely happy is because they don't seek their own praise, but they seek to glorify the other. Throughout all eternity, they've been pouring oceans of love and praise into one another. And if you and I want to share in this joy, to share in this love, to share in this life, we need to do what they do.
And when you and I live for ourselves, and when you and I live for our own glory, when you and I live for our own happiness, we are flying in the face of the heart of God. And we're cutting ourselves off from who we are and what we are made to be. I can't help but say right now, God, help us. God, help me. And I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus begins this whole prayer by talking about his hour. In fact, when you read John's gospel, he keeps saying, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And now here again, he's saying now the hour has come. What is the hour that Jesus is talking about? What is it? His death. Wow, that had an exclamation point to it. His hour is his his horrific death. And now in his prayer he says, okay, this hour has now come. And see, I think most of us know a great deal about Jesus' death and and kind of what it means. But what I want to do right now is understand Jesus' death in light of the Trinity. Because when you look at verses 1 and verse 5, Jesus is praying for glory. He's praying that the Father would glorify him. And see, what we know about Jesus is that when he left the bosom of the Father, when he left the family of the Trinity, when he came to this world, he emptied himself of all his glory. I mean, that's what it says in Philippians 2. Or you can read Isaiah 52 and 53, where it says he had no beauty or majesty about him, that we should desire him. Or that when men looked at him high and lifted up, they literally had to hide their faces from him. So I've always read these verses as Jesus asking the Father, Father, you know I'm about to die now. My hour has come, but after I get through this horrible hour, would you now glorify me? Would you... Return to me the glory that I gave up. That's not what Jesus is praying, especially when you consider John 12, verse 23, when Jesus finally says, okay, now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, for when the Son of Man is lifted up, on what? A cross, he'll draw him into himself. And so what Jesus is now praying is he's praying, Father, glorify me in this hour. In other words, Father, I want to be glorified in the cross. Father, please let the world see my glory in my hour. I don't know how that hits you, but this is stunning to me. Because what this means to me is that the ultimate expression of God's glory, it's not after the shame of the cross, but it's in the shame of the cross. And so, the one who spoke millions of billions of stars into existence... The Bible says that those, those stars, day after day, declare the glory of God. But what he's saying here is that my ultimate hour of glory is in the cross. 
And I'll tell you what this means for us. It means that there is no greater glory than for us to give up our glory to glorify someone else. That there's no greater beauty than for us to give up our beauty to make someone else beautiful. And there's no greater satisfaction than for us to give up our satisfaction to satisfy someone else. That's why Hebrews 12 can say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And see, the heart of God is on full display in the cross. So that when Jesus went to the cross, he was not kind of coming up with a new thing, but this is simply what he was doing at home in the family of the Trinity throughout all eternity. And see, what the cross shows us is the inner life of God. It shows us the heart of God. Because at the heart of God is to give up. It's to give up everything for the sake of the other. It's this kind of selfless laying aside me so that I can glorify you and praise you. And this is what's been going on in the Trinity forever. And now hear these words, church. Let them be one as we are one. Let the glory which you have given me be given to them. The glory of what? The glory of the cross. He says, let them be one as we are one. Let them, let them have eyes to see my glory that they may love and with the same love which you have loved me and may I be in them and them be in me. Do you see the kind of oneness and unity that Jesus is talking about? I mean, this is so much more than we get along. This is so much more than, oh, we all believe the same things. It's the oneness of the dance. It's the unity that comes from being in the dance, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And see, this is Jesus' prayer. That they would know this, that they would share in this, that they would participate in this, because he so badly wants that the love and the glory and the joy that's in the family of the Trinity to be in this family, his church. And that the way of the cross would so mark who we are and how we live and how we treat each other. Does it? Is it? Is the life of God and the life of the cross living in us and living through us? Do you know him? Do you have eyes to see the glory of God in Christ? on a cross. And does your life right now reflect the glory and the way of the cross 
Are you still living for yourself? Are you living for your own glory? Are you seeking your own happiness? So I love what Paul says in Galatians 6. He says, may I never glory or may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's all flowery language by Paul. But what Paul is saying is this. He says, when I see the glory of God in Christ crucified, the God of the universe hanging on a cross, He says, I want that in me. And I want it so in me that I'm crucified to the world. I'm dead to the world. I'm dead to living for the world. I'm dead to seeking the world. And I'm alive to the glory of God, the joy of God, the love of God that lives in me. And I say, oh, that we would put on display to the world the glory of Jesus Christ crucified. I mean, what would happen? This is what I thought about as I was preparing this. Like, what would happen if we really lived the way of the cross? If we really believed in our hearts that the way up is down, that the way to get glory is to give up glory, that the way to happiness is to seek another person's happiness, that the way to find life is to lose life. And Jesus tells us the answer to that question. I'll tell you what happened. The world would look at us and they would actually believe. Look at verse 21. And then I started thinking about our marriages. I mean, how often do I hear, well, I left her because she just wasn't making me happy anymore. And these are Christians. These are people who claim to be in Christ. Since when is marriage about my happiness? It's about giving up happiness to make the other person happy and therein lies the secret of true happiness. And that's why the Bible says husbands and and wives be one so that the world may believe our marriages preach the oneness and unity that we have in the family of the Trinity to the world. I started thinking about the church What if we really went the way of the cross? I'll I'll tell you this. the, the, The way of the cross doesn't allow for grudges. It doesn't allow for bitterness. It doesn't allow for sarcasm. It doesn't allow for gossip. It doesn't allow for revenge. It doesn't allow for unforgiveness. And see the proof to the world that God is for real is by the way you and I treat each other, forgive each other, serve each other, praise each other, love each other. This is what will tell the world that there's a God who's for real. Let me get personal. Are you in the flow? 
the flow of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existing to praise the other, to love the other, to share that with you. And see, so many of us, we spend our whole lives just striving and, and pushing for more and then clinging to everything that we have. But the way to get God and the way to get his flow in us and, and, and being poured out through us, we give up. We give up living for ourselves. C.S. Lewis said this. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Keep back nothing because nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look out for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But seek Christ with all your heart and you will find him. And with him everything else thrown in. God, give us the grace this morning to give up. Let's pray. God, I just uh, thank you that you have given us such a magnificent reality of who you are in the Trinity. And God, I just pray this morning that our eyes would be open to see just who you are in your heart and life and the inner workings that have been going on through all eternity through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God, you so much want to share that with us. And I pray this morning that we would be in a posture where we could receive it and be caught up into it. That we would just give up and surrender. And that you would just sweep over us and into us all that you are and through us into a world that is dry and thirsty and desperately needs you. Make us one as you are one. In Jesus' name, amen. We're just going to um, get off the page right now and we're just going to stop for a few moments and consider John 17. We're going to consider whether we're indeed in the flow 